uh, today we're going to be looking at knowing God's all-surpassing love from Ephesians chapter 3 verses 14 to 21. So glad that you've been able to, to join us. Uh, let's uh, pray and then we'll consider God's word together. Our Heavenly Father, we pray now that as we consider your word, that you would be powerfully at work in our hearts by your Holy Spirit. We pray that we might know the depths of your love for us and be transformed by your love for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves you? Now, Christians talk a lot about the love of God for his people, how God loved the world so much that he gave his only son to die for us on the cross so that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. But of course, sometimes we feel a disconnect between what we know of God's love and what we feel of his love. In an abstract sense, we, we know that God loves us, but in our hearts, we doubt God's love. Is God really good to me? Does God really have my best interests at heart? Does he really love me? But assurance of God's goodness and love towards us is critical if we are to live the Christian life. If we doubt God's goodness and love, we won't come to him in prayer. And if we doubt God's goodness and love, we'll lack conviction and resolve in our evangelism. And if we doubt God's goodness and love, instead of experiencing joy in the Christian life, we'll often feel bitterness and doubt. And if we doubt God's goodness and love, we'll, we'll lack assurance as to whether God will really keep his promises, or whether the Christian life is worth living at all. In other words, the love of God demonstrated towards us in the cross, it's the engine room for the Christian life. That the love of God is the powerful means by which God transforms us from the inside out to become more like Jesus and to live obediently for his glory. Do you know that God loves you? Well, in our passage today from Ephesians 3 verses 14 to 21, Paul turns again from exposition to intercession, from explaining the gospel to praying that will be transformed by the gospel. And in this prayer in particular, Paul prays for power to grasp the measureless love of God. Now, we've seen this movement to prayer and praise all throughout this letter so far. In, in chapters 1 to 3, Paul has recounted so far all the amazing uh, blessings and grace of God to his people how he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in Christ, how he's saved us from his wrath and made us alive, how he's united us uh, with his people and, and, and made known his eternal plan. And again and again, as Paul has pondered these wonderful truths, we found Paul abounding in praise for God and prayers that his readers would truly grasp these truths, not only intellectually, but experientially in the heart. It's a good reminder that preaching, praise, and prayer, they always belong together in ministry. The Christian life is never merely about understanding gospel truths, but praising God for them and praying that those truths would transform our hearts. Well, in this passage, we see in verse 14, it begins with those words, for this 
reason. And so what motivates Paul to pray uh, this gospel prayer is the gospel truths he's just expounded about God's plan and about our place in it. Uh, John Stott writes this, The indispensable prelude to all petition is the revelation of God's will. We have no authority to pray for anything which God has not revealed to be his will. That is why Bible reading and prayer should always go together, for it is in Scripture that God has disclosed his will, and it is in prayer that we ask him to do it. Uh, and so, uh, in this passage, Paul turns those gospel promises uh, and, and, and gospel truths into prayers to God. Now, just before this passage, Paul has reminded us of the boldness and confidence that the gospel gives us to approach the Father, which we just saw in verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. And so knowing the boldness and confidence we have in the gospel to approach our Heavenly Father, Paul now prays this bold and confident prayer. Well, we'll consider his prayer under three headings this morning. Who do we pray to? What do we pray for? And why do we pray ultimately? Well, firstly, who? Uh, Paul prays to the Heavenly Father. Paul prays to the Heavenly Father. Look at verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. See, that is the normal pattern of Christian prayer. We pray to the Father, through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, after all, that is the, the pattern that the Lord Jesus himself uh, taught us when he began the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven. Uh, coming to God as our Heavenly Father is one of the crowned blessings of the Gospel. Now, we've seen in chapters 1 and 2 that, that Christ's death on the cross means that we can be adopted as God's children, that we can become members of his own household and receive a heavenly inheritance in his family. And so it's a great blessing that we can call God our Father. Now, of course, in some settings we see Christians praying to Jesus or even to the Holy Spirit. And while such a practice is not heretical, because after all, both Christ and the Holy Spirit are divine, uh, it is not the normal pattern of Christian prayer. We're taught again here, we address our prayers to our Heavenly Father. And notice Paul bows his knees here before the Father in prayer. Now normally the Jews stood in prayer, so kneeling here is an external sign of reverence and humility and dependence. Paul realises that he is praying to the sovereign God who made all people, the God of overwhelming glory. And so he kneels in reverence. Of course, that doesn't mean we must always kneel when we pray, just as we don't have to always close our eyes when we pray. But our posture can remind us very helpfully of our place before the God to whom we pray. Now, we also see here that God's fatherhood is the pattern for all human fatherhood. Let me read again verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, translating verse 15 is a little bit difficult here. The word for family and the word for father are very closely related in Greek. 
And, and if you look in the footnote, some translations have tried to bring that out by translating uh, every family here as all fatherhood. Now what seems to be said here by Paul is that God's fatherhood it provides the archetypal pattern of what human fathers, and therefore human families, should be like. So it's not saying that God is like human fathers, but rather it's saying that human fathers should be like God the Father. I think some of us struggle to think of God as Father because maybe our human fathers have been deficient or absent or even abusive. But even if we've had good human fathers that we love and respect, it is dangerous to, to look to our human fathers to understand what God the Father is like. The whole idea of fathers and family, it, it derives from God himself. God is the one who sets the standard for fathers. And what kind of father is he? Our Heavenly Father is a, is a Father full of grace and kindness, has lavished his goodness upon us, has given us the Lord Jesus Christ and showered upon us every spiritual blessing, who's, who's used his almighty power in love for his children. That is what human fathers are to be like. They are to love sacrificially, to use everything in their power to love their precious children. So that's our first point this morning. To whom do we pray? We pray to our Heavenly Father. Well, secondly, we consider here what Paul prays. And Paul prays for power to know God's love. Paul prays for power to know God's love. Look at verse 16. He kneels before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So Paul prays that, that God would be powerfully, graciously at work in us by the Holy Spirit, in our inner being, in our conscious heart and will. But notice here, how is the Holy Spirit powerfully at work in our lives? I mean, some might expect that the Spirit's powerful work would be seen in miracles or or in speaking in tongues, or in, in exorcisms perhaps, or some other powerful supernatural experience. But that's not at all what Paul has in mind here, is it? Uh, perhaps that indicates how much some have misunderstood the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Because Paul thinks the Spirit's powerful work is seen as Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. Remember in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, we, can, we consider God's great resurrection power at work in the believer, taking us from being dead in sin and, and making us alive in Christ. And we saw that that amazing change, it happened by grace through faith. And here we see that that change was brought about by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. For without the transforming work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we will never put our faith in Christ. We'll still be dead in sin. But by the Spirit, verse 17, it says that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. In the Bible, our hearts are not so much the place of our emotions. That's actually our guts. Our heart is the control center. It's the center of our being, the place of our decisions and will. 
And of course, when we put our faith in Christ, Christ already dwells in our hearts by the Spirit. We, we saw that in chapter 2, verse 22. In him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So when we put our trust in Jesus, he already comes to live in our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And so we might ask, why does Paul pray then for believers that the Spirit will powerfully work so that Christ dwells in their hearts? I think what Paul means here by Christ dwelling in our hearts is that he will reign in our hearts that he will rule over our lives, that he will direct and control our lives according to God's glorious will. In other words, Paul is praying that as the Spirit changes us from within, Christ's Lordship would be more and more evident in our hearts and lives. Now notice how Trinitarian Paul's prayer is here. Paul prays to the Father, that by the powerful work of the Holy Spirit, Christ would dwell in our hearts, ruling our lives. And notice how the Holy Spirit works here. He's not drawing attention to himself, but he's shining the spotlight on the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might love him and live for him. And he's drawing us to our Heavenly Father in prayer. The Holy Spirit wants us to come to Jesus and to the Father, not to focus our attention on Him. And so by the Holy Spirit, God wants to do radical surgery on our hearts. He, he wants Christ to rule our lives so that he's, he's more important than anything else, more important than our family and our careers and where we live and, and our possessions. And, and that's why we need to be strengthened with power by the Spirit, because it's only God who can make such radical changes to our hearts and lives that we truly live under the Lordship of King Jesus. Well, how does this change in our hearts actually happen so that we live for Christ as Lord? And Well, in the second part of the prayer, we see that it's, it happens as we know Christ's love for us. Paul prays, that God will be powerfully work at work in our hearts so that we will know the all-surpassing love of Christ. Have a look at verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So plants have roots that feed them, and buildings have foundations that ground them, keep them stable. And Paul prays that we would be rooted, that we would be grounded in love. I don't think he's talking about God's love for others here, but, but rooted, grounded in God's love for us. In other words, he's saying that, that God's love is the foundation of the Christian life. He's saying that change in the Christian life, transformation in the Christian life, it comes from knowing and grasping the immeasurable love of Christ for us. His, his love so long that it stretches into all eternity. His love so wide that he offers it to all the nations. 
His love so deep that he lavishes it even on the worst of sinners. His, his love so high that he exalts us to heaven. His love so great that only four dimensions are enough for us to begin to grasp how amazing his love really is. Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to comprehend something that has four dimensions, breadth, length, height, and depth. It's actually impossible, isn't it? Paul's point here is that the love of Christ is so great, it surpasses our human capacities to really comprehend it. Now, let me try and illustrate it in this way. In a single human cell, single human cell, are approximately 100 trillion atoms. That's a one with 14 zeros after it if you're trying to get your head around it. So one human cell, 100 trillion atoms. There are 100 million cells in our body. There are 7 billion people on Earth. The sun is 1.3 million times the size of the Earth. Our sun is one of 100 billion stars in our galaxy. And there are over 100 billion galaxies in our universe, stretching over at least 93 billion light years. Now, I just want you to try and imagine that you could write down how many atoms there are, therefore, in the universe. I think if you spent your entire lifetime writing zeros, you would still not have enough to write down how many atoms there are in the universe. That's how vast the universe is. And yet even then, Christ's love is bigger. Christ's love is more expansive. It's deeper. It's wider. It's higher. Verse 19 tells us that Christ's love, it actually surpasses knowledge. It's impossible to fully comprehend just how loving Jesus is towards us. But the fact that we will never fully be able to comprehend the love of Jesus for us, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't try. Paul prays for his readers that God would be so powerfully at work by his his spirit, strengthening them in their inner being, that they may begin to grasp something of the immeasurable love of Christ. He prays, verse 19, that they may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Know the surpassing love of Jesus. Well, earlier, Paul has used that same word, surpassing, to describe God's power, chapter 1, verse 19. His grace, chapter 2, verse 7. Now he's using it to describe God's immeasurable love. And elsewhere, he's spoken of the unsearchable riches of Christ and the, the riches of his grace. In this passage, he speaks of the riches of God's glory. And we really get the sense in this letter that Paul is, is, is grasping at words in his attempt to describe just how glorious and good and loving God is towards us. So good, I guess, that we will spend all of eternity and still not exhaust the riches of his grace and love. Paul wants us to know, deep down in our hearts, 
how much God loves us. And in the third part of prayer, of the post prayer, we see the goal. Verse 19, he says, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, again, that's a, that phrase is slightly difficult to explain. Uh, to say it as simply as I, as I can, as I understand it, to be filled with all the fullness of God means that our lives will be so fully controlled by Christ that we bear in our lives the fullness of God's loving character, especially as we love others like the God who loved us. Next week, for example, we'll see the goal of Christian growth in chapter 4, verse 13. He will write, will write there that we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of of Christ. So growing into the fullness of Christ means that we become like Christ, fully mature in every way. And we'll also see next week how to get there in chapter 4, verse 15. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. In other words, Paul prays that by the Holy Spirit we would so know and grasp the immeasurable love of God for us. That as the love of Christ fills our hearts, it, it transforms our hearts. So that we respond in a, a greater and a deepening love for others. That makes us more and more and more like the good, loving, gracious God that we serve. More and more transformed into the image of Christ who loves us so dearly. In other words, that we will be filled with all the fullness of God. There is the essence of Paul's magnificent prayer that God would strengthen us with power by his spirit that Christ would rule our hearts that we would grasp the love of God in all its dimensions and so be filled with the fullness of God transformed into his likeness. And such is the boldness and confidence we can have before our Heavenly Father. Although we, we bow before God's heavenly throne in great humility, we can pray big prayers like this because we're fully convinced that God can and wants to answer even big prayers as this one. Notice how Paul closes in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. And Paul reminds us in verse 20 that whatever we ask, no matter how great or small, we can do so with confidence because God is able to do far more than we can even imagine, let alone ask for. I think sometimes when we pray, either consciously or unconsciously, we, we think that God lacks the power or the goodness or the wisdom to actually answer our prayers. And we pray because we know we need God's help. But deep down we doubt whether God will actually hear us or help us. Perhaps as we pray for our non-believing friends or family, we doubt whether God can really save them. Or perhaps as we pray about our struggles with temptations and sin, we doubt whether God can really help us to overcome those sins. Or perhaps as we 
pray that God would make us more loving and forgiving, we, we doubt whether he will ever, he ever will. It will be a lost cause. But the God that we serve is not lacking the power, the goodness, or the wisdom to answer our prayers. Verse 20, he is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. Now, that, of course, doesn't mean that when we pray for a high distinction or a job promotion or a spouse, he, he will automatically give all of those things. Of course, he can give us those things if he wants. But we've seen throughout this letter that God's will is greater and far better than all the temporary material things that often uh, occupy our concerns. The God of, of superabounding grace and love promises us far more than just marks or a job promotion. We've seen he gives us every spiritual blessing. He promises radical heart transformation. He promises an eternal future with God. He promises a life that glorifies God. God will do abundantly more than all that we ask or think. And that should give us great confidence as we pray, to pray big gospel prayers like this one. Well, that brings us to our final point this morning, why Paul prays. And we see that Paul prays, ultimately, for the glory of God. Paul prays, ultimately, for the glory of God. We see that in verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Makes sense because God is the God of infinite power, the God of measureless love, the God who has lavished his life-transforming love on us by the power of the Spirit. It means he alone is the one who deserves eternal glory. And I think it's worth asking the question, how often is my ultimate concern, my ultimate prayer, that God would be glorified I think so often our prayers are focused on ourselves instead of others, focused on temporary things instead of eternal things, focused on the physical instead of the spiritual, focused on our glory instead of God's glory. But Paul provides us here with a wonderful example of what godly, mature, biblical prayer looks like. Who? We pray to our Heavenly Father. What? We pray for strength to know God's love, that our hearts will be transformed. Why? We pray for the glory of God. May that be the shape of our prayers. But as we close, let's just look a little bit more closely at how Paul expects God to be glorified. Look again at verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Now, I suspect we uh, may have expected the second half of that, that God will be glorified in Christ Jesus. But we may not have expected the first part, that God may be glorified in the church. How is God glorified in the church? He is glorified in the church because, as we saw last week, the church 
which is the people of God, is the living testimony to the love and power and wisdom and grace of God. And God's plan for the church, for his people, is to transform it into the image of Christ as the Holy Spirit works in our hearts so that we know his love and reflect it to others. And we've seen throughout this letter that the church is the body of Christ, the church is God's holy temple, the church is God's glorious family, the church is God's redeemed community of peace. Indeed, we will see later, the church is the bride of Christ. And it is God's plan that as God's love transforms our hearts and makes us more like Jesus, well, God will be glorified not only in Christ, but he will also be glorified in us. Because we are like him, and he will be glorified in all generations, forever and ever. Well, as we conclude, let's return to where we began. Do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves you? We've seen today that the love of God is the engine room of the Christian life. It is the love of God that radically transforms our lives for the glory of God. But we've seen again in our passage today that we not only need to hear and, and know gospel truths like this, but we need God's Holy Spirit to powerfully work in our hearts so that through those gospel truths, our lives are transformed for the glory of God. So let me say to you this morning, if you are unsure of God's love for you, if you have some of those doubts that I mentioned earlier, take some time to read again through Ephesians chapters 1 to 3. And as you do, as you read through Ephesians 1 to 3, ponder again the riches of God's grace and love, kindness, he has lavished upon you in Jesus. Consider how he saved you from your sins. He's given you peace with God. He's given you a place in his church. Meditate on those truths. And as you do, pray that God would be powerfully at work in your life to transform your heart for his glory. Because if anything we're assured of, in this passage, God certainly has both the power and the love to do it. Well, let's close in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, out of your glorious riches, would you strengthen us with power through your Spirit, that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. May we be rooted and grounded in love. And may we have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. May we know this love that surpasses knowledge and so be filled with all the fullness of God. To you, O Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.